You ready to get into the book of Proverbs? Let's take out our Bibles. If you need one, raise your hand and we'll get one right to where you're at. And I see uh, back there we got Jeff and, and Eli and Terry and and I can't see who else is back there. I think Sandy's back there. Um, take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin and we can begin. Today is part eight of our ten part series to the book of Proverbs in what I, as I tore it apart, kind of came up with ten major subjects that Proverbs covers. And one of them happened to be the issue of leadership. And that is what we're going to address today. And I entitled today's message, Prophets, Priests, and Kings. And I wanted to begin by laying a foundation for why I believe leadership is so important and so valuable in this world, especially Christian leadership. And so if you would bear with me, I have a bit of an introduction that I want to get across to you. And I would hope that by the end of that introduction, it all kind of ties in together. So I begin with this thought. Uh, you all have heard of this concept that Jesus fulfilled the trifold ministry of prophet, priest, and king. Yeah? You guys ever heard that? All right, so let's kind of go through that concept real quick. Was Jesus a prophet? That's pretty, pretty basic, right? Yeah, he spoke the words of God. Uh, was he a priest? Does he mediate on behalf of mankind? That's pretty clear. Is Jesus Christ king? Okay, so that's obvious as well. So we have prophet, priest, and king. But what about when he left the earth? What about when he took off? He resurrected and he ascended back up to the Father. What happened to the role of prophet, priest, and king? Because every one of those offices is necessary for running the kingdom of God and certainly being present down here on earth. So who then fulfilled that office? Well, what we have found, as if you look at Scripture for any length of time, is that Christ said, it's better that I go because I'm going to send another to you who will be the comforter, right? The Holy Spirit. He said, and when we as God do that, we're going inside and nationwide. So he then d determined to go into the body of Christ, which is the body of believers, and continue that ministry of prophet, priest, and king through us. Now, you may have heard it in perhaps some different titles. You may have heard titles such as salt, light of the world, priesthood of all believers, right? You've heard those phrases. Those are not all that unusual. Well, they're the same exact offices. Let me tell you why. Let's go through this one by one. What does a prophet do? A prophet speaks on behalf of God, right? Isn't that what a prophet does? What is our job as believers to do individually for the world? To bring the good news, right? Is that not what we do? So we need to know Scripture inside and out because we present the Word of God to the people. Non-believers cannot present the Word of God to the people. It's only believers. So our job is to be prophets in this world, not to foretell the future, but to foretell the truth of God's revelation in His Word. Anytime you evangelize or anytime you share the gospel of Christ, that's exactly what you're doing. You're acting in the office of a prophet. What does a priest do? A priest presents the concerns of the people to God. Think about Old Testament, old school. How did it go? They did it through primarily three ways. Praises, prayers, and sacrifice, right? 
You think of the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the idea was to present it on behalf of the people up to God. Now, Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. So everything is paid. All the heavy lifting is done. But what do we as believers do for the world but present their needs and requests on their behalf to God? Are we not called to be intercessors? Are we not called to draw them and say, hey, Jesus, your mediator, is right there willing to hear your prayers? Have you opened up in Scripture and noticed the odd passage that says, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed? Have you read that? Does that not seem odd? Why would I confess my sin to another messed up human being? That seems weird. It's kind of like the only person that forgives sins is God alone. So why am I confessing my sins to you? In what way does that make me healed? Well, here's how it should go. Let's say right here, Russ, I have come to him and I said, Russ, I'm thrashed. I completely sinned. I know I screwed up. I know I messed up, but I can't get beyond it. I know I brought it to God. I've consistently tried to lay it down on the altar and I can't seem to move on in my life. What in the world am I going to do? Here's what I did. Here's what I brought to the Lord. What's his job to do? To remind me of the truth of Scripture. He is then to say, you know what, bud? I'll hang in with you. Let's pray to the Lord right now. And let me remind you of a few things that the Bible says. Let me remind you that it says in Romans that there is therefore no more condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let me remind you that you have been cleansed. Let me remind you of the truth of Jesus. Let me remind you of the truth of the cross. In other words, as I share my needs with him, he reminds me of what Jesus has done for me. And that allows me to move forward. Are we not then priests in this world? But what about kings? Are we kings? Well, I ask you this. What do kings do? Kings rule, right? That's what defines a king. A king rules. Well, you've heard the idea that we are to be the salt of the earth. So besides flavoring, what does salt do? Preserves. A preservative makes sure things remain as they ought to be. In food, that means spoilage, right? So a preservative is in the earth. Believers are in the earth that it might remain under the influence of the kingdom of God. Therefore, our job is to be sprinkled out throughout the earth that it might be here on earth as it is in heaven, at least underneath our influence. Rulers rule. Kings rule. Leaders rule. Every one of you fulfill the office of king. You say, well, that's not true. I'm not a leader. I don't have any title. I don't have anything that... Nobody looks at me as a leader. You're incorrect. Leadership, by definition, in the simplest term, I put the fill in the, uh, not the fill in the blank, the quote on your page. I've never heard it said any easier than John Maxwell. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. That means if someone's following you, you're a leader. You go, I didn't ask them to follow me. I don't care. Are they following you? Then I guess you're a leader. I guess you got responsibility. Well, but they're, I mean, they don't even think I'm that big of a deal then why are they following you? If you turn around and somebody's there, you're a leader. All right, so let's begin to break this down a bit more practical. In other words, are you a mom? They got little ducklings that follow after you. Then you're a leader. 
Are you a dad? Then you're a leader. Are you a husband? Then you're a leader. Are you a wife? Then you're a leader. Do you run anything? Are you involved in the PTA? Do you run a gym class? Do you do anything with coworkers? Do you influence anybody? If any of that is true, you're acting as a king in that realm. Therefore, everything that you read in the book of Proverbs may well apply to you if it refers to leadership, whether you like it or not. I know you didn't ask for the role. I know you don't want the role, but you've got the role and now you got to do something good with it because we are the preservative of the world. And Jesus is going to execute his truth through his body of Christ. So it is our responsibility to go out into all the world and make it here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen. As we move forward. We realize as well that not only are we all leaders in one fashion or another, but we all have leaders over us. Anyone that influences you is a leader. You go, I hate my leader. Okay, I get that. You don't like your boss. That's cool. I know you don't like this. You don't like that. You're frustrated by this. You're frustrated by that. Look at the fill in the blank in front of you. This might solve the problem. All leadership is appointed by God. Who do you got a problem with now? Right. All leadership is appointed by God. The Bible is very clear on that. God raises up nations. He tears them down. You say, but my leader is a non-believer. My leader does not believe in Jesus. My leader is a bad leader. Hold on a second. Let me ask you a question. In Israel's history, how many years did they have a godly leader and how many years did they have a pagan leader? Okay, thank you very much. In other words, the majority of their whole history was leaders that did not believe in God. They were always in captivity underneath somebody else. No, of course, God always operated his movement through the the Israeli people through a pagan king more often than not. So what I need you to understand is that even though you may not think that your leader or the person influencing you is from God, understand that God can use anything to get his will done, whether it's believing or unbelieving. Now, what I found as I opened up the book of Proverbs and studied the issue of leadership, I found that it speaks to four crucial issues of leadership. The first one is humility. The second one is integrity. The third one is hiring practices of who you have around you. And the fourth one is responsibility. So let's dive into the first, and that is the issue of humility. Would you turn with me to Proverbs 27, 1. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1. It's page 468 in the Bible's handed out to you. 468. If you drop your Bible open in the middle, you're pretty darn close, all right? Proverbs 27, verse 1. I'll just read this verse to get us going. I will pray for the Word, and then I will dive off into a wild tangent. Here we go. Proverbs 27, 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. I believe that is a call to humility. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may we begin at the right place, and that is on our knees before a rightful Lord and King. May you speak through us, may you speak to us, and may that which we do here on earth be pleasing in your sight. That, Lord, that we would maintain as children of God the justice, 
and righteousness of God. Lord, even now in our small areas and arenas of influence, that we might make you smile and that you could look down and be pleased. In your name we pray. Amen. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You know what I think that means? I think it means I'm God, you're not. That's what I think it means. He's thinking, how in the world that you've been given a little bit of power that you bought into this concept that now you are God of all creation? You're not. I can shut you down at any moment. As a matter of fact, God will periodically, just to reset the button, remove leadership for no particular reason. He'll sweep it right out. You go, what happened? Everything got ripped away from me. God did that either for your protection or for the protection of those around you. See, I believe that God allows us to live in a certain tension. And the tension is this. God wants to make you realize that you are valuable to him. So he constantly pumps you up. I sent my son to die for you. You're extraordinary. You're like a shining star, it says in the New Testament. It goes on and on and on and on and on about how wonderful God thinks you are. And yet at the same time, whenever we're told that we're wonderful, there's this temptation towards pride. And God has to keep deflating our heads and mellowing us out. Otherwise, we'll get out of control. So in one sense, he's trying to empower us. And in the other sense, he's trying to restrain us. That tension exists for all of us. But I think that the tension is necessary because the effects of pride are damning. And here's what I mean. Would you keep your finger there and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel? The book of Ezekiel, you're going to go to the right in your Bibles. Ezekiel 28.1, page 606. 606, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. The passage we're about to look at has been debated for millennia as to what it's talking about. Scholars disagree. Some people say it's this, some people say it's that, and so I'm going to lend towards one man's opinion, and you can take it or leave it, because we're going to step out into speculation. Whenever you're in speculation, you take it with a grain of salt, it is not gospel fact unless it's written down in Scripture. So, let's see what Scripture says and let's see a man's opinion of that. We begin in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Came to who? Ezekiel, the prophet. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre. Okay, so we know who it's addressed to. It's addressed to the one that is ruling over the city of Tyre. Have you ever heard of that city before? Okay, Tyre and Sidon were two sister cities. They're referred to many times together. It's a city. This is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man. You are not a God, though you think you're as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. Look down at verse 9. 
You will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those that slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, nobody argues who is being addressed there. Who's being addressed is the ruler of Tyre. Some man that has risen up into the leadership role of the city. The man that is the highest leader of Tyre is being addressed. And what's the point? You think you're a god. You're not. And in order to tell you that you're not, I'm shutting you down and you're done. We all clear on that? Then who's he addressing in the next passage? The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. Wait, who did we just talk to before? I thought we already addressed the ruler. What, we got a ruler and a king? What I'm about to read is the debate. Is this passage about a man or about Lucifer? Lucifer, of course, had his name readdressed as to Satan. Who is this addressing? Some scholars say it's merely a man. Do not make it more than it is. Other scholars say, how in the world can you attribute this to a guy? This is clearly something or someone other. I tend to lead towards the second. Let's take a look at it and you can determine for yourself. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament. That means a funeral song or funeral poem concerning the king of Tyre. Say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you and nine gems are named. Now, side note, the way those gems are listed out are very similar to the way that the priestly gems are labeled on the Israelite priestly garment, the ephod. They had 12 stones. This has nine listed. But understand, precious stones were sewn into the breastpiece of the priest in Israel. This is a very much of a priestly reference right here. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you, for you have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Who's that referring to? Okay. Regardless of how you view it, what's the problem? But pride. 
A gentleman named Donald Barnhouse wrote a book a number of years back. I believe it was called The Unseen War. I, I can't remember the specific title. And he was one of the first gentlemen that began to write down things that I thought about. And what he began to do is speculate on this passage and other passages like it about who Lucifer was and what the problem was. And this was his theory. And I would have to say it has some incredible merit and it's things that I began to piece together myself as I read through scripture. But he wrote it down and got paid. I didn't. OK, moving on. Here was his view. His view was in this passage, it says something about Lucifer being anointed. What? Guardian cherub. Now, that's very specific. A guardian cherub. Do you realize that in the Bible there are basically three angelic beings or heavenly beings that are referred to? The first and the most common is what we call angels. Now, do you realize that angel is not a title of someone, but it's actually a function? What does angel or angelos mean in Greek? What does it mean? It means messenger. It means to bring something as a servant to someone else on God's behalf. So, for example, if I wanted to uh, share something with somebody or I was going to give somebody something on behalf of God, I am to them what? But an angel. Okay, so it's a function. But we usually call the angels the good-looking, big old studly guys. You guys know who I'm talking about? It's all the good-looking guys that wear the white clothing and they have the things tied around their waist and they're like bronze and they're all buff. Okay, that those are the angels we tend to think about. There's only two that are mentioned in Scripture and their names are Gabriel, who announced Christ's birth and many other announcements, and the archangel Michael. Okay, there are two other heavenly beings that are mentioned in Scripture. They're referred to in books like Ezekiel and Revelation. Now, these critters are odd. These are some very strange-looking guys or whatever they are. They're the ones that got four faces, and they're always going straight, and they got wheels attached to them. You're like, what? What are you talking about? Okay. The two different beings are seraphim and cherubim. Now, if you shorten those, it's seraph and cherub. Are we all following this? Now, in the heavenly throne room, when it's seen in a vision, those two characters do very specific functions. The seraph seem to be hovering about or ministering before the altar of God. They seem a bit more focused on the worship aspect of the throne room. The cherub, on the other hand, are right next to the throne. They're always hovering about the throne. Why? We don't know. We only know of speculation. Do you understand that the word for cherub is the same word for curtain? You go, well, that's kind of odd, kind of random. Not really, because here's why. You guys remember in the tabernacle or the ancient temple, there was a place called the holy place where the priests would go. And then there was a place called the holy of holies. Y'all remember that? What's in the holy of holies? The Ark of the Covenant. You remember that? The presence of God. In between the holy of holies and the holy place is what? But a curtain. Embroidered on that curtain is a picture of what? Cherubim. As a matter of fact, on the Ark of the Covenant, on the lid, are two golden images stretching their wings out across, which are what? Cherubim. On top of the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, whenever you get near the presence of God... 
you see cherubim around. They seem to be, for all practical purposes, bodyguards. They seem to be hovering like a curtain around the glory of God. Now, why is it that God needs protection? Oh, no. God's fine. Who needs protection? All the rest of the universe, okay? So, in other words, the curtain that stands before the Holy of Holies is not to keep God safe, but to keep the whole rest of the world safe. Because God is dangerous. Now then, if these cherubs then hover as a curtain or a shield to the glory of God around the throne, Barnhouse would speculate, is it possible that their job, their trade, the job that they hold is to take the messages of God and convey them to all of creation? Then to receive the praise from creation and turn around and hand it 100% back to God. Now, we have Lucifer. Let's say he's a shielding, covering, a hovering, moving being. And you say, why do you say it like that? When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what was placed at the entrance? A cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth so that no one could get back in. A wall or a curtain. Yeah? Okay. If indeed his job was to shield the glory of God, he got to see the most magnificent. And yet, it's likely that God would convey his message through his men to send out to creation. At some point, don't you think that if you're the commander for God, you get to say things that everyone goes, every time. Here's where I'd like to make it practical. The danger of every leader is that if God is coursing through you, at some point you're going to think it's you. What happens is if God speaks through you and praise comes back and you hand 90% to God and you slip 10% in your pocket. Eventually what happens is you start believing that you're the one that needs to be praised. Because answer me this, I don't have another good answer for why in the world Satan could get it in his little beanie that he can take over God's throne. Have you guys ever thought about that? If you see the glory of the Almighty, where did you get the idea that you can take over? It's just absurd to me. But somewhere, somehow, he bought into the concept that he was king. He believed he was God. And that is what ruined him. I believe that every one of us follow in those same footsteps of danger. When you convey things on God's behalf, you're changing lives. But when the praise comes back, it's not for you. It's for God. And when you keep buying it and stick it in your pockets and your pockets get all fluffy and filled out, you might begin to think that you're God. And that we must not do. We begin with humility. The second element of that is in Proverbs 21.30. The second element of humility is in Proverbs 21.30. This is a message of warning and a message of peace, I believe, for all of us. Proverbs 21.30 says this. There is no wisdom... No insight, no plan that can succeed against Yahweh. 
That's for you. That's for me. And that's for Satan. Understand this. If you start thinking that you get to be in charge of everything, you're in charge of your life, you're in charge of uh, making all your decisions, and you're going to be completely autonomous, do you realize what you have done? At the heart of every sin is displacement of God from the rightful throne. You're sitting in his chair. The heart of all repentance is what? Getting out of his chair and giving it back to him. Right? Because only God alone must sit on the throne of your life. Anything else is sin. So when we look at this passage, we must realize that even when you get arrogant and cocky, if you go against God, if it's not in His will, He will shut it down. So in some ways, it's a warning. But here's the way it brings peace. Satan cannot do whatever he wants to do. Not to you as a believer, nor to me as a believer. He is restrained. He is not in charge. Who's in charge? God and God alone. Therefore, everything that Satan has to do must be stamped by God allowing it. There is no other way. Satan is not an equal opposite power that is thrashing against God. He is a rebel in the kingdom of God. That's very different. He is a created being. God is an uncreated being. Therefore, they're not in the same circle. They're not of the same sort. Therefore, we give Satan way too much credit in our world. Now, granted, the Bible is very clear. You do not slander celestial beings. As a matter of fact, even when I use the phrase, Satan's a little beanie, I got nervous. Right? Why? You don't mess with them. Are demons and Satan bigger than human beings? Yeah, they'll squash you like a bug. But the Bible says that for believers, greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world, right? We believe very strongly that we are not our own anymore. We are marked with the seal of ownership of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are God's property. Satan messes with us. He's messing with God. And that is why we have confidence to move about in this world. Because Satan is restrained. He is not free to do whatever he wants. And his plans against God will not succeed. Amen? Amen. The third of the issue of humility is found in Proverbs 16.10. Would you turn there with me? I'm moving at a snail's pace. I apologize. Proverbs 16.10. The last element I want to speak to you about the issue of humility is a responsibility factor. Here we go. Proverbs 16.10. The lips of a king speak as an oracle, and his mouth should not betray justice. What is an oracle? But a message from God. You guys may have heard a bunch of these different ideas about what an oracle means. Well, that's what it means. A special message from God. Therefore, when the king speaks, those of his subjects will look up and assume that God has spoken. Now, does he always speak clearly for God? No, of course he does not. Neither do we. But have you ever seen the authority that a parent holds over a child? Have you ever seen a little child look up at the face of the parent to see their worth and value? Have you ever seen someone of influence look up to their leader or commander as if they're speaking on God's behalf? Here's all I want you to know. We've already taught a whole message of Proverbs on the power of our words, but it's never been more powerful than on the lips of a leader. 
Because when a leader speaks, everyone assumes God said something. So we take that responsibility very, very seriously. Do not abuse that authority that you've been given. Right? We pick up the second element, and that is the issue of integrity. Turn with me to Proverbs 14.34. Understand that everything flows downhill. We lead from the top. There's a trickle-down effect. If there's corruption in an organization, you need to go a couple steps above it to find out how it was allowed to exist and why it's in the organization. For example, at some point, somebody knew about it and someone allowed it to be there. So we must lead from the top with integrity. Proverbs 14:34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Your integrity directly affects your authority to lead properly. In other words, do you understand how difficult it is for people to follow a corrupt leader? That's a huge strain. Because you go, I don't respect you. You're a joke. Look at you. You're going to act like that. And I'm supposed to be underneath your authority. I have no interest in you. I'm irritated by you. I don't want to do anything that you asked me to do. I have to because God told me to, but I don't like it. Therefore, I believe every leader must earn the right to be that leader. For example... Y'all know that it's not title that matters, right? Y'all have bosses at work that have the title and nobody respects them. And then there's the people that have no title and everybody respects them. Okay, so we're all clear on that. Here's what I do believe. If you are given a title, it is your job to earn the right to hold that title. You go, well, there's certain things that force people to follow me. Yeah, you're right. But they all think you're a moron. You understand? Let me make it more practical. Remember when we talked about the godly family? Gentlemen, what did I tell you was your job in the family? Head of the home. You go, well, it's pretty cool because the Bible says my kids need to obey me and my wife needs to respect me. There we go. Stick that in my pocket. Right? Really? Do they need to hate you the whole time they're doing it? Or how about being a good leader? Every great leader leads people with integrity and servanthood. Therefore, the people underneath them want to follow. They're not forced to follow. Every horrible leader leans on their title for their authority. You don't lean on your title. You earn the right to be heard. You earn the right with your children. You earn the right with your wife. You earn the right with your husband to be heard. That's what great leaders do. Please don't ever fall back. If you have to fall back to your title or fear to motivate, you're a poor leader. Just mark that down. We should always be leading by integrity and love. Amen? Amen. Let's just do a side note on Proverbs 31, verse 4. Would you turn with me there? A side note on the issue of drinking. Now, this is not a treatise on the issue of drinking. I've taught on it many, many different times. And we don't have time to go into it here. I'm only going to speak to the issue of drinking insofar as it ties into leadership. I don't want to go beyond that. But there's a specific talk on it. Proverbs 31, verse 4, refers to a king by the name of Lemuel. Or Lemuel, however you want to say it. (laughs) That just makes me laugh. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, not for kings to drink wine, nor for rulers to crave beer. And you say, why? 
It's not like God's going, because those elements are bad and because I want to try to crush your party. That's not at all what he said. Look at verse 5. There's a specific reason. Lest they drink and forget what the law decrees and deprive all the oppressed of their rights. Look at the next phrase. You won't hear this taught in in, in churches. Give beer to those who are perishing and wine to those who are in anguish. All right. That's not normally taught either. However, let's talk about the issue of leadership. One of the reasons that drinking is curtailed in the life of a believer is because we are the ones on alert. God has given us the responsibility of being the preserving agent in any given situation. What happens, everyone, when the lifeguard at the public pool is lit? Y'all understand what I'm saying? Okay. If the king is hammered, bad things happen on his watch. Here's the problem. We always go, oh, God's all against drinking. God's all against drinking. No, it's because it makes you stupid. That's the problem. And you're not on alert and people get hurt on your watch because you're not paying attention. You're having me time. And when you have me time, then everyone else can get away with all sorts of things. And the whole time that your senses are dulled, you're not ready to go. If God says go, you're dulled down and you're not paying attention. Our job is to be a preserving agent of justice and righteousness. So we need to be alert at all times. Does that make sense? It's not an issue of trying to ruin fun. It's not an issue of any of that. It's a practical issue of leadership. Are you on task? All right, then. Be alert. We pick up the last one on that issue, and that is in Proverbs 19.6. The last issue on, issue on integrity. Proverbs 19.6. There's an incredible temptation that comes with leadership, as I mentioned before, and it's mentioned right here. Proverbs 19.6, many curry favor with a ruler. What does currying favor mean? Kissing up. Thank you. That's it. Many kiss up to a ruler, and everyone is the friend of a man who gives gifts. Okay, so what's the point? When you have authority, when you have power, everybody wants to be your friend because of what it can get them. Therefore, at some point, you have to call it what it is and resist the temptation to think that you're great. That's all I wanted to point out. There is a tremendous intoxicating effect of power. I have heard all kinds of different things where little parts of my mind would fire up. I heard about other other religions and other churches. I'm in this religions class. And sometimes they allow these other religious leaders the power of God. And I was thinking, man, how intoxicating would that be that you walk out And for me, because of my leadership, I would walk out and I was God's representative and everything I say is infallible. Okay, I don't know what that does to a man, but I wouldn't be able to handle it. I'll tell you that right now. Something's going to go wrong. You cannot tell a fallible man that he is God without having some repercussions, right? Right. We pick up the number three issue, and that is the issue of hiring practices. Turn with me to Proverbs 25, verse 4. Wherever you are in your leadership, you have to have consultants around you or advice. And you also have people that you lead and motivate around you, whether it's a volunteer staff, whether it's your friends, whoever you have. We need to figure out how to select the right people to get the job done. Of course, if you're in business, this becomes all the more clear. Proverbs 25, verse four. 
Remove the dross from the silver, and out comes material for the silversmith. Okay, stop. What does that mean? It means the way that you purify silver is you heat up a bowl of silver, and all the yucky stuff floats to the surface. You scoop that off, and now you have pure silver. Are we all cool on that? In the same way, verse 5, remove the wicked from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. Bad counsel equals corruption. If you've got a bunch of buddies that are speaking to you about how to be a good dad, and they're not godly, some bad stuff's getting in. You've got to watch your influences. We've talked about that before. So let's address the second. Proverbs 26.10. How do we select those that we lead? How do we select those that help us lead? How do we select our employees? Proverbs 26.10 Like an archer who wounds at random is he who hires a fool or any passerby. You cannot just hire anyone. If you are the leader of any influence, your job is to pick good representatives for you. Because they will be an extension of you. Therefore, we need to be very, very careful on our hiring practices. So let me give you a little trick of the trade. And we use it here in our church over everyone that we hire. Hire for character first, skill second. You are going to have a tremendous temptation to hire for skills first. Okay? Now, I use this example, and this may be completely wrong because I, I, it, my memory's not all that hot right now. Okay, the NFL team that has the biggest trouble with the law, is that the Cincinnati Bengals? Isn't that who it is? Or is it the Cleveland Browns? Sorry, Cleveland. It's Cincinnati. All right, good. At least I had my story straight. Here's the deal. The Cincinnati Bengals have had tons of their guys go to jail. What that does is it stops their ability to play ball. You go, well, Lance, that's kind of obvious. Okay, but why did you hire the guys you hired? Because they're great players. But there's no integrity. And when there's no integrity, you can't play on the field. So everyone goes, but they're the fastest guy. It doesn't matter if he's in jail. I don't care how fast you run from that wall to that wall. It doesn't matter. If there's no integrity, nothing else matters. And it will ruin your industry from the inside out. We must hire for what? Integrity first. Character first. Skill second. Skills can be taught. Character must be grown. And that takes a long time. So be wise. So the final area is the issue of responsibility. Would you turn with me to Proverbs 20, 26? What, what this does is it answers the question why you're a leader in the environment you are. You're always going to ask this, God, why me? Why now? Why here? Let me give you those answers. Why do you have me leading in this? Why am I uh, a father? Why am I a mother? Why am I doing this? What is my calling? What is my job to do? Well, I believe in part you'll have those answers right here. Proverbs twenty twenty six: A wise king winnows out the wicked. He drives the threshing wheel over them. That means he crushes them. What is a leader's job? A leader's job is to get rid of evil. A godly leader eliminates evil. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, God asked you to be there so you would get rid of the evil that exists. You go, but my kids are all evil. <laughs> Guess that's why you're the parent, aren't you? 
Do you understand that every time we talked about discipline and the godly family thing, the idea was to remove out that which was bad in the child so that they might be purified. That's why we do what we do. Proverbs 18:17. Would you turn there with me? Another thing that you're called to do as a leader is to be fair. And sometimes that's hard. Proverbs 18:17. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. Okay, this has bit me so many times in leadership. Someone comes up and they present their side of the story and it always sounds legit. And I buy into it and I'm totally convinced and I'm all mad at the other party and then all of a sudden they show up for their meeting. They present their side, which of course is legit. Now I'm mad at the first person and it's confusing. Here's the deal. If you're a leader, you must hear both sides to the story before you make a decision and determination. Because that's only fair. And part of our job as leaders is to what? Be fair. If you're not fair, who's going to be fair? The final one we close with in Proverbs 31, verse 8. Never has this been more true than in the year of world impact, the year of justice and righteousness, after hearing Larry Martin of the International Justice Mission. This is true, I believe, and this is why you have the authority you do. Proverbs 31, verse 8. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly, Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Any corruption that exists had to get there by passing by a lot of good people who closed their eyes. All injustice of the world should have been caught by someone. And their lives are being made easier by us turning away and ignoring it. There is no way for millions of slaves to exist in the world in modern day without the church and the believers of this world abdicating their responsibility. You see, we are called to be preservers. We are called to be men and women of justice. We are called to be God doing the work He asked us to do. That's why we're still here. Once you got saved, it would only make sense that God would go poof and you disappear if it was only about your salvation. It's not. It's beyond you. And there's a bunch of people that don't know Jesus and people that know Jesus walking around hurting each other. Our job is to say, stop doing that. And please love on the other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I close with this final thought. We are all leaders in various ways, and for some of us, it's overwhelming. I don't know if I can be the mom I need to be. I don't know if I can be the dad I can need to be. I don't know if I can be the boss. I don't know if I can be the coworker. I don't know if I can lead this or lead that or lead the other thing. God, I'm totally ill-equipped. Here is something I believe to be true. If God asks you to do it, He's going to empower you to get it done. And you need to understand this. If you can maintain your integrity, and if you continue to chase after the Lord, God will do all the heavy lifting that needs to be done. And you do not need to fear tomorrow because God knows what's next. And He will prep you today 
to handle what's coming tomorrow. And if you are afraid of your current calling, if God asked you to do it, there is nothing to fear. You guys, if I sat down and examined what I do for a living, I would become absolutely paranoid. Because I could completely dump the church upside down. But I'm not in charge here. God is. My job is to keep in step with the Spirit and maintain my integrity. God does the rest. That is the only reason I can sleep at night. It's no different for you. You will be empowered by God to be a parent. You will be empowered by God to be a teacher. You will be empowered by God to be a great worker if God asks you to do it. Now, God's not going to empower you for stuff He didn't ask you to do, per se. So you always got to ask the question, God, is this what you want me to do? If it is, please rest easy in the power that the Lord will provide. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You, Lord, for a message of refreshment and challenge on the area of leadership, that, Lord, may we be pleasing in Your sight to be able to go out and be that preserving agent, that we would be the salt, that we would be the light, that we would be the priests of the world on Your behalf. That, Father, You have called us to be ambassadors of Your Son, Jesus Christ. You have empowered us with the indwelling of Your Holy Spirit. And we as believers march out with marching orders and absolute confidence that You are more than able, for we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.